This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode has been carefully curated from the Top of Mind archive, and there's a lot to choose from. We've been going in-depth with guests on the air every weekday since 2015, searching for new perspectives and ideas. I hope what you hear today makes you think about your world a little differently and sparks satisfying new conversations with the people in your life. Let's dive in. The health hazards of lead are well established. It is a neurotoxin that affects brain development, especially in children. The harm also extends to personality. People who were exposed to high levels of lead in the air as children, back before the U.S. banned leaded gasoline, are less agreeable and more neurotic as adults. Ted Schwaba is a postdoctoral researcher in psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. He led this research into lead and personality, and he's with us now. Mr. Schwaba, welcome. Thanks for your time. Hello. Oh, thank you. You are basically saying that any American who was a child before 1970, when the EPA banned leaded gasoline, they all have problematic personalities? I wouldn't go that far with it, but I am saying that people who are exposed to more lead certainly don't grow up to have as wonderful outcomes on average as people who are exposed to lesser amounts of lead. And there have been historical problems with lead exposure in the U.S. and across the world. How are you gauging the, the, the effects on personality? What, what are you looking for specifically? Yeah. So what we did in the study um, was we used an online personality questionnaire that over a million and a half people have taken. And a wonderful thing about it is you can take it yourself. You just go on outofservice.com and you can fill out a big five personality test. The nice thing is that these people gave consent for their uh, test scores to be used in research and also told us where they grew up and how long they lived there. So we were able to link atmospheric lead levels from the EPA to adult outcomes, such as how agreeable, conscientious, warm and friendly they were uh, by this personality test. Hmm. And so agreeableness, that this is something yeah. that they were they were answering questions. I mean, were they saying I'm agreeable or not agreeable <laughs> or was it more sort of more subtle than that? <laughs> it's a little bit more subtle than that. But a wonderful thing about personality questionnaires is they tend to work quite well if you just ask a person about their personality. Now, of course, it might not work so well if you're doing it in the context of a job interview because someone's going to say, oh, yes, I'm wonderful. Please hire me. But if you ask someone, hey, are you generally an anxious, tense person? What they say about themselves, what their friends and family and loved ones say about them, and you know the outcomes they have, whether they wind up going to therapy or experiencing depression, all kind of go together in a way that really helps us believe that how you fill out these questionnaires online are actually great markers of your everyday personality. And, and you correlated the personality test with where the individual grew up and during what time period in the United States? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So as you mentioned in the lead in, uh, one of the big problems with the United States and the world throughout the early 1900s and in some places almost to the present day um, was the use of lead in gasoline. And back when we had leaded gasoline, there was a lot of pollution in the air that had lead in it. And as a result, um, people generally had higher levels of lead in their blood. Uh, the current clinical cutoff for amount of lead in your blood to be you know, something that doctors are monitoring is five micrograms per deciliter. So five. The, in 1973, people had over 15 micrograms per deciliter of lead in their blood on average. Mm. So it used to be a huge problem. Uh, okay. And this is... It, the, the EPA was measuring lead in the air at this point? Correct. Yeah, there's lead monitoring stations set up. Thankfully, as the level of atmospheric lead has gone down, there's less and less concern about monitoring atmospheric lead and more and more concern about monitoring lead in pipes and lead in soil and groundwater. But yeah, there's a wide network of data available on a ton of different environmental um, outcomes. And if you just look around on the EPA website, you can find it yourself. And then you connected the dots here. So you've got right. and, and, um, and, and what were you then able to what kind of correlation did you see? Uh, explain that for us in terms of people's personalities and their childhood atmospheric lead exposure. Yeah. So one of the ways in which researchers generally understand personality in modern times is by using the big five personality traits. 
So if you go through all the words in a dictionary that describe people and have people pick out the ones that describe them the most or the least, you can have these clusters of different terms. So one of the clusters that matters the most um, is conscientiousness. So that's how responsible and put together and determined a person is. So people who are conscientious, well, they tend to have better, you know, work and school outcomes. They show up to things on time, they get more promotions. And people who had high levels of lead exposure as children grew up to have lower levels of conscientiousness. Hmm. So that's one negative effect. But there's more dots to connect because the effects that we found of lead were quite widespread. So we also found, as you alluded to, a negative effect of agreeableness. So people who are agreeable tend to be warm, friendly, compassionate, and they tend to be trusting and compliant. We found that people exposed to more higher levels of atmospheric lead grew up to be less agreeable. And then finally, another trait that's really tightly linked to mental health outcomes is neuroticism. So that's how anxious and depressed and emotionally volatile a person is. And in some of our analyses, but I'd like to caution not all of them, we found that most or people who were associated, sorry, people who had higher levels of lead exposure tended to grow up to be more neurotic. So that's three broad domains of personality that we found negative associations with lead, and- indicating that lead's not healthy. Okay, which is like not a big headline because, of course, we knew we've known lead is not healthy for a long time. Um, But why would lead be core? Like, how how could it possibly make someone less conscientious over over their lifetime? Yeah, so I'm I'm not a neurobiologist, um, but there are a lot of links between the amount of lead that a person has in their system and the way in which their body and brain develops. So there's some research that's come out that shows that people who have more lead exposure as children tend to have less functional connectivity in their brain as adults. And so these complex effects on just the way in which neurons transmit information and the way in which our brains and bodies work together really seems like lead is is clogging up the system a bit and really making it so people don't develop to their maximum potential. Um. Isn't it possible, though, this is it's just a correlation you're finding here mm-hmm. in large um, and, and you see you, you see this shift happening kind of roughly timed to when lead levels were highest. Right. But then things changed right. after the 1970s. Correct. Right. Isn't it possible that there were other societal or environmental changes that were happening in the 1970s to cause this kind of shift in personality, for example, you know, changes in people parent and the way parents were expected to behave toward their kids, which could certainly, I would think, affect how conscientious or neurotic a child is. <laughs> certainly. Right. Uh, yeah. One of the big problems with research on lead exposure is that you can't do it in a laboratory with experiments because it's simply unethical to give some people lead and give other people not lead and see how they differ. Mm-hmm. And so figuring out if lead causes these issues is consequently pretty difficult. We have to look in the environment and look at ways in which the world changes. One nice thing is about the environment and how lead exposure works is that as lead was phased out due to the 1970 Clean Air Act, not all areas dropped in lead at the same time. Mm. So some places had high levels of lead in the atmosphere because they had gasoline with lead in it up until even like the early 1990s. And other places, even before the Clean Air Act, they started to drop in their levels of lead. And so thankfully, by looking at the way in which the personality changes were associated with lead differentials, but in different areas, it kind of helps us vary all these different ways to figure out what affected what. But you're right. It's impossible for us to totally disentangle some other effects of things that happened in the 1970s. I mean, one major um, thing that changed in the 1970s was just feminism uh, kind of grew out of or some waves of feminism grew out Mm -hmm. in that era. And you can imagine how that sort of societal shift might also have created people and societal changes in personality. Hmm. Um, Sure, changes in access to medical care or changes in diet, Mm -hmm. lots of things. I mean, were you able, do you see, do we have any idea if personality is influenced by lead exposure or correlates in other places in the world where lead has been found at high levels? Right. So uh, 
great part about this study is that we were able to also look at the associations between lead and personality traits in 37 different European nations. So this allows us to test whether we find the effects in a different cultural context, but also uh, because lead is measured differently in Europe and because they got rid of lead from gasoline later on in different European nations, it kind of gives us another way to look at this issue. And so we found in Europe that people who were exposed to higher levels of lead tended to be, as adults, less agreeable and more neurotic. We didn't find the conscientiousness association in Europeans. But two of those three findings held in Europe, which gives us some more confidence that, yeah, perhaps this is caused by lead and not just a random fluctuation or a historical event. You were correlating this, Ted Schwaba, to um, air, lead in the air. But, but like you said, we we tend to think more about lead in the water, like in Flint, Michigan, or lead mm-hmm. in the pipes or lead in the paint or <laughs> the soil, whatever. <laughs> um, is Does inhaling the lead, do we think, I know you're not a neurotoxicologist, yeah. but does would there be any reason that exposure to lead through the air would have a different effect on people than exposure through these other ways, like through, you know, being a kid and eating paint chips? Right. I mean, I think any way that lead gets into your system, it's going to be problematic. The nice thing is because we have this historical data and because historically atmospheric lead has been by far the biggest uh, cause of lead in people's blood and lead exposure in general, that in the data that we're using, it is probably the big cause of people's lead exposure. Thankfully, as lead exposure from the atmosphere has gone way, way down, we now are able to turn to things like lead in pipes. Um, and unfortunately, leaded pipes and other sources of modern day exposure really do tend to exert disparate impacts on different groups of people. Mm. And so I think it is important to continue studying the effects of lead, both as an issue of social justice, but also to make sure that these effects that we find from atmospheric lead also translate, like you said, to uh, other sources of lead exposure. What do you mean disparate effects? Yeah. I mean, one of the most striking facts is that uh, today, so remember there's that level five micrograms per deciliter is the level for clinical attention. Black children are twice as likely as white children to be above that threshold in the U.S. And back in the day when lead exposure was mostly happening because of gasoline, well, anyone who lived near cars or machinery or factories, so basically everybody, was exposed to lead. But now because it's the lead exposure has shifted sources, we really have to make sure that some vulnerable groups in our population and also communities of color don't continue to be affected by lead exposure more than other groups of people. And I think you mentioned this a moment ago, Ted Schwaba, but just to underscore as well, this, um, you know, if, 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 if you're connecting the dots here and the link is that lead exposure affects the way the brain develops, which affects, you know, emotional, you know, your ability to regulate your emotional responses, your, um, you know, the ability to relate to others, whatever causes empathy in the brain, all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. If all of that is somehow impeded, you know, or affected even in, in a very minor way, right, by, by lead exposure, um, that could lead you to be slightly less agreeable or maybe a little more neurotic. Um, Over time, though, it's not just that you might be, you know, not everybody's favorite person, (laughs) but it could actually affect your educational and your 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 job outcomes at some point in your life. Right. People have found that personality really affects everything we do because we bring our personalities everywhere with us. And so, yeah, even a small societal change or a small change in an individual person making them perhaps a little bit more anxious, a little bit less organized. Well, that's a whole lifetime of problems you're going to be finding yourself in compared to if you were just, you know, able to wake up on time a little bit more often, able to say, all right, we differ in our viewpoints. We're not going to have an argument. All these different effects of personality change really snowball. And so I think that's kind of the big contribution of this research is that we've previously linked a lot of lead exposure issues to these clinical issues and clinical problems. But the effects of lead exposure might be so broad that they're even affecting our broad and everyday personality traits. And that's a really problematic consequence. Ted Schwaba is a postdoctoral researcher in psychology at UT Austin. Thanks a lot for your time today. Thank you very much. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. More great conversations from the Top of Mind archive are coming up.
It's good to have you with us today for Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Disney princesses didn't used to be a very empowering bunch. They were slim, submissive, and always waiting for a prince. But Disney's princesses have come a long way since Snow White. Brigham Young University family life researcher Sarah Coyne is finding that nowadays girls and boys are learning a lot of good stuff from engaging with Tiana, Elsa, Merida, and Moana. Professor Coyne joins me now in studio. Welcome back. Hey, thanks so much for having me today. So you've been looking into the effect of princesses, Disney princess culture on kids for a long time. And some of the research you've um, published most recently is a follow-up with some children that you were looking at years ago when they were youngsters, right? Like five years old. What did you find at that point about how they were being influenced by their fascination with Disney princesses? So the first study was published in 2016. And we found that for girls who are really into princess culture at age four, they tended to be more gender stereotyped at age five, meaning that they were more girly, um, less likely to take risks, um, which can be limiting if you like think that you are not going to do well in, say, math or science or feel like you can't have a certain kind of career because you're a girl, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. Okay. Um, and who who were their their princesses at the time like their favorite princesses what 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 kinds of models <laughs> were they thinking about at that point so tangled had just come out so the number one favorite princess of the time was rapunzel but then uh, cinderella and the little mermaid were the n- number 2 number 3 choices oh, okay and um and and these girls it wasn't just that they liked the idea of being a princess that they liked the the gowns but there was something deeper about kind of what they thought a true, like a real woman <laughs> was or how they should behave. Is that right? Like it was it was kind of permeating the way they thought about their own value as girls. Yeah. So they're just more likely to adhere to gender stereotypes, meaning like a girl is a certain way mm-hmm. and I can't really go beyond that. And so then you followed up with a lot of those kids. Yeah. Uh, how many years later? How old were they at the time when you followed up with them? So our most recent study is when they were, on average, 10 to 11 years old. Okay. Were they still into princesses at that point? Yes. Really? <laughs> a oh, lot yeah, of them. A lot of them, okay. yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and what did you find at that point then? How were they thinking about the, you know, boys do this and girls do this kind of stereotypes? So totally switched on me. So those, So for both boys and girls who are really into princess culture at age four, They tended to hold more progressive attitudes around women and men in early adolescence. Meaning like like what? More progressive attitudes around women and men. So we looked at it two different ways. So the first is egalitarian views of women. And so um, should men and women have the same opportunities? Should a girl be just as likely as a boy to go to college or Mm. to be a doctor or... Um, to have a certain kind of job or to do housework, right? So like the same kind of roles in life. And then we also looked at um, men's emotions in the context of interpersonal relationships. And what that means is like it's okay for a boy to cry when he's sad. It's okay for a boy to tell you that he's um, feeling scared when he's feeling scared, right? A lot of our perceptions of traditional masculinity is suggested, oh, you have to be a manly man. Like, boys don't cry. Mm-hmm. So kids who are really into Disney princesses early on in life were less likely to, to say those kind of things. That surprised you? Um, well, with the original results being that they were more gender stereotyped. Yeah. Kind of. But then when you look at it in the context of the princesses themselves and who they are today, it mm. I think it makes a lot of sense. Right. So you think that... Um, Rather, you think that, that the princesses changed more so than that the kids, like, somehow got really woke and started recognizing and kind of, you know, re- recognizing the messages or seeing them in a different way. It's interesting because media is often a representation of society hmm. and of culture. Mm-hmm. And so you can't, like, separate the two things together. So, I mean, these kids are growing up in a society where we're talking more about um equality between genders and kind of what that looks like. Mm. Um, There's more opportunities for women today. And so I think that's part of it. But still, on top of that, 
those who were highly engaged in princess culture kind of had this added effect. Yeah. I mean, what's What's really counterintuitive to me, because I get it that and we'll talk in a moment about the like the progression of the Disney princess, but um, because that's been pretty striking as well. But Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting to me that that you're finding it would make sense that kids who are really into princess to to the modern Disney princesses would sort of have this more progressive idea. But but the fact that you found that kids who were really into princesses when they were four and had these gendered ideas about what boys and girls do and what's appropriate, that they are more likely to be progressive, even more so what compared to kids who weren't into princesses mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. So somehow the princess culture over the course of their childhood had this had this positive effect rather than sort of like a null effect, right? Yes. And uh, something that I've grappled with as well. It's and, crazy. And, and the more progressive princesses that you mentioned... Um, Merida and Elsa and Moana, they were all after that first stage of data collection, right? And so I I think it's just seeing a female protagonist who is the heroine of the story, and it's her story, right? And even, you know, older princesses, you could say, um, still do amazing things. And they are... Um, nuanced and complex hmm. and flawed in in some ways compared to say the fifties and you know sixties types of princesses. Right. So let's talk about the you do in your research, Sarah Coyne, um, kind of. And I don't know if you invented this or not, but but sort of identify these three generations <laughs> of Disney princesses. Yeah. All right. So so I played a little bit of the Snow White. Right. You know helpless and waiting for her prince to come and and the action's always happening to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cinderella falls into that category, but Cinderella does some empowering things like, you know, manage to get a get her get herself to the ball when and, yeah. you know summon her fairy godmother, right? That's fair. Yeah. yeah, you know, and make friends with all the animals that help her to get there. So, yeah. um but then what would be like the next generation of, uh, of of princesses? These would be the ones that the little the boys and girls that you were studying had kind of been steeped in at the time. So uh, like the Little Mermaid. Jasmine, right? okay. Belle. Yeah. OK. And 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 that was, I guess, a progression from in, in what ways were those princesses a progression from the earlier like the Snow White's? Of Disney, yeah, we were starting to kind of push the boundaries on gender roles with those princesses. For example, so Belle is is one of my favorite princesses, actually, and like she's not the typical woman. They sing a whole song about it, right? In yeah. Beauty and the Beast, she's and into books and she's a scholar, right? <laughs> she loves to read, and anyway, and so we we were kind of pushing that a little bit, mm-hmm. but they were still fairly gender stereotypical. Especially on the masculine side, right? So the beast is gruff and, you know, and has a hard time coming to terms with his emotions and reacts and angry, angered. And Gaston is just like muscle bound and, you know, and and masculine to the to the T. Gaston is like the perfect example of toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. But he's the villain. So at least there's that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Right, right. Um, Okay, so starting to push the boundaries a little bit. But... The next, then, what? What's the next progression in in the Disney princess? I'd say kind of the mid two thousands to where we are now, and before it was all about finding love. Like even the, you know, stories that weren't really about love were still kind of about love and mm-hmm. finding a man, right? Mm-hmm. And I think when Merida came out, that was um, really groundbreaking because it was the first Disney story where it wasn't about finding love; it was about finding herself. And so that's when it started to shift. And I think that each Disney movie after that has had that theme, that there can be romance and that's sometimes a part of the story, but it's not the only story. Right. It's it's more about you as a human being. Yeah. So Elsa and coming to terms with her gift a slash example. curse. And there is no love interest for Elsa. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, interesting. And Moana mm-hmm. also, who... Uh, it's about you know saving her people yeah. and finding finding her heritage, um, and and that's interesting because I, I I guess if you think about the earlier uh, 
the, the earlier generation, you had Belle and you had um, Ariel, who I always I loved the Little Mermaid. I loved the music in the Little Mermaid. And looking back, I find that a very problematic story because so problematic because you know, <laughs> in order for her to fulfill her dreams, she has to give up a part of who she is. Yeah. She has to choose between having legs or being a mermaid, and right. you know, has to, you know, and and loses her voice in order to get the man. It's just it's Absolutely. terrible. Yeah. Um, but she at least was a headstrong young woman who didn't want to you know sort of follow the expectations of her people all the time, right? right. So she was a pathbreaker, sort of, which felt like that was, um, you know, an important message. Um, okay, so today you have Disney princesses that Disney has clearly and maybe also society is reflecting, like, mm-hmm. you know, w- w- we no longer feel like it's important for the story to revolve around things happening to the squirrel and, you know, and and the man being the savior. Mm-hmm. Um but even the the girls who for whom Ariel was everything, <laughs> you know, when they were four year olds, um, were able to somehow glean some important messages that helped them to not be so gendered later in their lives. So, so do you think we've just like wrung our hands a little too much about the subtleties of those stories? And what really matters is that a princess is the star of her own show. Maybe, but when you look at the complexities of each story, um, which it's hard for a four-year-old to really pick up on, but I think that kind of goes deeper Mm -hmm. as they get older. Um, There are some beautiful themes. So even like Cinderella, right, which is Mm -hmm. like a highly stereotyped, right, example, is one of the greatest examples of perseverance Mm -hmm. of any princess, right? Mm -hmm. And like never giving up. And, and that's actually a characteristic that's not gender stereotyped, right? Um, and so there are some beautiful characteristics, I think, of every princess, as problematic as some of the stories are, that when you dive deep, you know, it's about bravery. It's mm-hmm. about being loyal. It's about being strong, even in some of those earlier ones. Do you think parents can play a role in that? Because it's impossible to protect your child from princess culture. <laughs> it, is it is in impossible. American society. <laughs> they will know who the princesses are. They will. Um, so what role do you think parents can play in helping hel- helping their children to get to get the best messages out of any Disney princess story? I think princesses represent an opportunity for parents to talk about some important things related to gender. And and this study had a pretty big impact on me as a parent. Really? Uh, I was actually inspired by it. Uh, to do this study because my daughter at the time was three and was super into princesses. And there's mm. all this talk of princesses were maybe harmful, but there's no research on it. And so... And did you get the sense that they were harmful, that she was somehow being affected by I the didn't. princesses? No, okay. but it made me worried. And I'm like, we should do some research. And then I found that they were more gender stereotyped. And I was like, holy crap, what's happening here? And mm. so it shifted the way I talked to princesses about her. And I, I remember Brave had come out recently and there was this whole controversy that, um, like, the doll Merida was really feminized and wearing makeup and, mm. you know, lower cut blouse and all these things. And and so I, I vividly remember talking to my daughter about it. And she would go to the store and find soup cans with Merida's face. And she's like, that's not the real Merida. Hmm. Like, that's the fake Merida. The real Merida shoots arrows and is strong. Mm. And so it was really nice to be able to kind of have those conversations. And so the lesson there is even if your daughter – or your son, I guess, is really excited about how pretty the princess is, you know, and wanting to have the pretty dress and the hair. As a parent, the focus is on what? The the skills and, and abilities of the princess. I think so. So in our early study, we asked kids who their favorite princess was and why. And the number one answer was appearance or merchandise, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what kids are going to go to. I like Rapunzel because she's blonde was like the number one answer, hmm. right? Hmm. Okay, that's all right. But, you know... I also like Rapunzel because um, she's loyal and because she's willing to try new things, even though they scare her. You know, those those kind of things are beautiful. And I even use that word are beautiful to me Mm -hmm. as opposed to just that she has pretty long hair. And Disney is helping parents as time goes on, make it easier to have those kinds of conversations, be a little less focused on physical appearance. Um, but you mentioned you've also we've we've mentioned throughout this conversation girls and boys girls and yeah. boys interested in princess culture you found some really interesting things specific to boys mm-hmm. and to the way masculinity is portrayed so let's expand on that just a bit before i have to let you go um first of all are there that many boys that are into like when when the boys in your study said they 
liked Disney princesses, were they admitting that like publicly? I mean, were they? I mean, they're four. So okay, as children, as little. Yeah. So the little, the four-year-olds really liked Plenty, Disney yeah. princesses. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. There were eleven-year-olds saying, "I love Disney princesses." There's a couple. Okay. There's a couple. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, four-year-old. I mean, that's just like those were those are the Disney movies, and they have princesses in it. So right. what are you gonna do? Exactly. <laughs> there aren't Disney prince movies, really. Not so much. <laughs> um, and so, what were the lessons then that the that 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 you saw boys picking up about about what it meant to be a boy based on those, you know, and how that's progressed. Yeah. So the early study found that boys were more androgynous, so kind of um, less likely to be super masculine focused in in at age five. Okay. Okay. It, so early on, they were more androgynous if they were really into princesses. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And then, I mean, that kind of carried over until early adolescence when they held those same views kind of about um, men's views, right, on mm-hmm. on emotion in relationships and men's views of women and, and so on. So okay. really kind of some positive outcomes for boys. But positive in that they were, they felt like, I mean, who, who were their models? Were, were, were they aspiring to be like Elsa or were they, was it because there was this Kristoff character who they could identify with, who, you know, is a working class isn't always right, isn't always the hero, doesn't even save the day. He comes along to support, right, in a lot of cases. Kristoff's one of my very favorite characters um, in Disney. He's he's far more soft than a lot of the men in Disney shows. Even his, like, body is, like, not the muscular mm. type. And, like, he sings songs about his feelings and his emotions, <laughs> which is kind of rare. So I think part of that. But also I think it's good for boys to see women in really strong, powerful roles, to be about their story. I mean, the equivalent for boys is superheroes, right? And we have a couple female superheroes, but for the most part, it's all about Batman and Spider-Man and, mm-hmm. and so on. And so I think it's kind of the antidote to superhero culture is to show them that there's, you know, something else out there. And, and it impacts their views on men and women later on. Do you have a son? Does he, did you, have you found that, uh, that princess culture has, has had a good, a good influence on him? I have four sons. And they're all different, oh, okay. but I'll talk about one. So um, my eight-year-old loves princesses, loves them, loves Elsa, especially has the dolls, has the toys, really loves it. And I, this the study changed me. I think maybe I grew up in a conservative culture, and so it maybe would have been like, I can't let him play with dolls. Like, that's too yeah. weird. But I, I kind of let him do what he wanted to do, and he was able to explore this kind of side of fantasy and princesses. And um, this little kid is like <laughs> a budding um, feminist. Mm. And he will call out sexism wherever he sees it. will let you know <laughs> that boys and girls are equal. And like, I'd like to think a little small part of that is because he was exposed to so many strong female role models in life, but also in media. Sarah Coyne is a professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. Thanks a lot for taking time. Thank you so much. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. This is a curated episode of Top of Mind from the Archive. I'm Julie Rose. It's good to have you with us today for Top of Mind. For female artists, the path to superstardom in pop music has long meant shedding clothing. She may start out as the girl next door, but the tried and true path of Britney, Beyonce, and Taylor always includes showing more skin as she climbs the pop charts. Entertainment marketing professor Kristen Lieb wrote a whole book about the stages of stardom for women in pop music— After sex symbol often comes hot mess, provocateur, or diva. It is depressingly predictable. But social media has introduced a new development, something Lieb calls emotional stripping. Lieb is a professor at Emerson College, and she's with me now. Professor, welcome. Thank you. What, if we could, before we dive into the specifics of this phenomenon that you've been tracking, can you just describe for me what makes this worth your focus as an academic? What makes it worth our focus <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a culture? Uh, meaning emotional stripping? Just in general, the branding of female pop stars, okay. sort of how they become famous and how they maintain their, their image. 
Sure. Um, so generally speaking, I would say the branding of um, women pop stars is an important thing to look at because it sort of tells us what we're valuing as a society. Uh, many of these women are sort of stand-ins for different uh, versions of the way uh, women can be in the world. So we get to see through them, through the branding of them, what things are rewarded and what things are punished, right? So I think it's not just about the branding of women pop stars, but about what we value in successful um, entertainment figures. So, so that's what I would say about um, branding. In terms of emotional stripping, I think it's an interesting continuation of some of the trends we've seen in branding, which is to reveal more and more and more and more. So initially, as you said in the opening, um, that sort was sort of about uh, clothes and and sort of presentation, self-presentation in terms of uh, your physical, your bodily presentation. But now um, people are beginning to reveal more and more about themselves sort of from the inside out. Hmm. Can you give me an example of, of how you've seen this play out recently? Because, I mean, musicians, like artists, always have to sort of tap into their themselves on some level, at least it seems like oftentimes, you know, they're singing about a breakup or they're singing about, you know, some sort of challenge in their life. What what makes emotional stripping different from that? Okay. So I would say that, you know, we've been trained to process stars' bodies, you know, for decades. And certainly there are emotional components to um, songs that people write and things like that. But the turning point that I started to see is like, um, the trend, the trend of hearing Kurt Cobain, you know, write a song, you know, where he says, I hate myself and want to die. And Amy Winehouse singing about needing to go to rehab and increasingly all of these sort of tell all streaming documentaries that we're seeing, uh, particularly uh, Demi Lovato's, I think, uh, got my attention. Mm. Um, so I think we're starting to see more um, in-depth looks at what's going on in terms of people's inner turmoil, like as it's happening. And I think one of, uh, I think in some ways it's actually good and I can talk about that, but in some ways it is, um, I think distressing because I think some of these stars are so young that you're kind of getting like a therapist glimpse into the inside of their head. And, you know, that may be where um, uh, audiences are um, getting like inappropriately um, private things from our artists. I don't mm. know whether that just makes yeah. sense. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's yeah. it's really interesting because so so you think that the audience, that fans, mm -hmm. on some level are demanding this of, especially of our female pop stars. Yes. So I think um, the last thing we ordinarily talk about when we talk about women pop stars is their music. And I think that's different than when we talk about men, unless you're talking about somebody like Justin Bieber, who I've argued has been managed more like a woman pop star. Mm. Um, and there are a number of, of different reasons for that, I think. Um, but I think we often talk about, you know, pop stars' bodies. We talk about their costumes. We talk about their boyfriends. We talk about all these things. And we, we rarely talk about their artistry, even our most esteemed artists. And so I look at emotional stripping as just, you know, another thing that we can be talking about that isn't uh, their music, right? So in a, in a way, it provides another barrier to that. And in some regards, I do want to say that emotional stripping can be a good thing. That is, it can put things on the public agenda that people have not been um, willing to talk about before. People are talking about their experiences with sexual violence, with mental health struggles, um, with suicidal ideation, with addiction, things like this. And again, I think that it can help remove some of the stigma, but the the granularity with which we're getting the details um, makes me a little bit concerned for stars, particularly young stars who may be sort of sharing all of this before they've even fully processed some of these things. Oh, okay. Okay. So because I, in some cases, it seems like the artist, so, you know, a pop star might do an Instagram post where they they announce, you know, I've had suicidal ideation. It's really important to take care of your mental health. Or they might say, and they might come out and after hashtag me too, a lot of, you know, female stars were talking about having been sexually assaulted or experienced sexual violence. And, and, and it was an important, it was empowering, or it seemed like it was an important empowering step to sort of be your authentic self and acknowledge and hope and me, you know, and they would often say, I'm hoping that this can help someone else out there who, you know, to know that that I also went through it and that you can overcome. 
that seems like a healthy thing, but there's there's a step beyond that. You think when it's when the when the person is so young that maybe maybe they haven't even seen a therapist about it. <laughs> They're just telling the world. And and what's the harm at that point, do you think? Well, so I think the other thing is that it's become sort of standard operating practice, right? I think mm. Oh, like you it's know, there's, expected there's of no, you. Like you know, like it's expected of you. Like you can't, you know, so you're a famous female star. What's your trauma? <laughs> what can yeah, you, you know? Yeah. What, yeah. I mean, seriously, I mean, I, I when I used to sort of when I was looking at um, writing my book and I was looking at, you know, the way that after sort of moving from the good girl stage, people are sort of moving into a more sort of temptress, you know, stage and music is becoming or lyrics are becoming more about sex and presentation is becoming more sexualized. No problem. Right. People can bring themselves to market however they wish. But what bothers me is the patterns, because I'm thinking that not every pop star wants to bring herself to market that way. Right. So in the same way with emotional stripping, not every pop star is going to want to be talking about, you know, all of her, you know, um, most painful um you know, secret struggles, so on and so forth. And the idea that that is becoming sort of routinized, I think, is something that we we want to, you know, reconsider. Mm. Female pop star stars are so are so carefully managed as a brand, as you have argued so clearly in your work, Kristen Lieb. Do you think there are actually conversations happening where management is telling, I don't know, Billie Eilish or Ariana Grande or Demi Lovato, like, you need to do some sort of heartbreaking, vulnerable disclosure <laughs> in order to stay relevant here. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised by that at all. Mm. Um, I think, you know, sometimes it's less, I think a lot of times people want to point a finger at an, at a manager or somebody at a label or something like that and say, this person told this artist to do that. I don't think it's that simple, but I think there's a lot of pressure on artists, particularly young artists, uh, and the pressure comes from all sorts of places. Uh, their handlers, like the people I just meant, mentioned, uh, their peers, right? Their peers doing things and getting validated for it could make them think the best way to get validated would be to share something of their own, right? Mm. This seemed to work really well for my peers. Um, audiences come to have certain expectations, right? We come to have certain expectations about the way a pop star looks or, or you know, what she talks about or, or, you know, what she shares and things like that. And then there's sort of society as a whole. You made reference to the Me Too movement earlier. I certainly think that Me Too opens the doors for these types of conversations. And again, I do think that, that there are um, positive uh, effects of that. But I also think, you know, um, brands are sort of meant to protect artists. I know that that sounds sort of funny, but mm -hmm. it's meant to sort of be a protective layer between the artist and the audience so that it isn't somebody walking around with their heart on a platter all day, every day, talking about things that normally only your loved ones would know about you, right? So that mm -hmm. brand, even when the brands have not been uh, created particularly well, served as some sort of protective device for the artist. And if it's just the actual human, um, that becomes a little bit more raw, a little bit more difficult, a little bit more dangerous, I would say, for people under the kinds of pressures that pop stars are under. Can you think of an example of a pop star whose brand has done a better job of, of protecting her um, in that way you described? Um, so one of the interesting case studies, I would say, would be someone like Fiona Apple, right? So when Billie Eilish started coming to market, I was looking at there being a lot of similarities between her and Fiona Apple, like down to the way they sound, uh, you know, some of the same things that they, they write about. And I looked at what Fiona Apple appeared to do, um, which is sort of as she was having the monster hit of her first album title, um, she seemed to sort of do everything in her power to make herself less marketable, right? Mm -hmm. um, she started releasing album titles that were so long that they broke like the Guinness Book of World Records for album length. Um, she started, uh, you know, giving, um, when she was giving acceptance speeches at award shows, you know, saying that the world was BS and like people shouldn't like use celebrities as hmm. as stand-ins for themselves and they should, you know, sort of think with their own minds and so on and so forth. And she just seem seemingly tried to like, take herself off of the sort of pop conveyor belt hmm. and and put herself in a position where she could focus on her artists artistry exclusively and she just you know by many accounts has sort of you know delivered the me too album of the pandemic right mm -hmm. and so but from a very different place like she wasn't sort of at the top of the pop star game she was more of a of an indie star at that point making an album so i think i think she um, probably in conjunction with her handlers, was able to sort of carve out a different sort of space for her where she can talk about the things she wants to talk about, but not 
um, in the sort of public or detailed way um, that seems to be the case uh, in, in, in some of the more current uh, pop uh, positionings. So the level of detail is also important, you think, to, to um, there's a line that you can cross. Are, are, do you think there are examples of female pop stars who who can who, who plug into their trauma and allude to it? And, and in that way, you know, they make themselves vulnerable, but it's in service of the art. And not just in service of sure. sort of advancing Absolutely. the brand. Absolutely. So, and I think I think you know what I'm what I'm thinking about more than that because certainly uh, trauma fuels great art. Um, but I think you know I'm talking less about like in the music itself itself, and I'm talking more about in like ancillary products, right? Mm. Videos, documentaries, so on and so forth. Again, things that sort of aren't the music. Okay. Um, so you would never fault a female artist for. Uh... Well, I don't know, doing something like Lemonade with Beyonce, you know, and she no. she <laughs> makes reference to being wronged in a lot of ways. Um, but, it, you know, it's considered a masterpiece. And and she was in control of the process. And it also was, you know, about the art. It wasn't about just disclosing and doing sort of a tell all about how she'd been cheated on or whatever. Right. I actually mentioned that specifically in the article I wrote about emotional stripping, saying that it, it, I'm not talking about that type of effort specifically. Mm. I'm speaking with Kristen Lieb, who is an entertainment marketing professor at Emerson College. She wrote recently about the the ways that female pop stars are branded and this um, newer phenomenon of emotional stripping, she calls it, uh, for an article she wrote recently for the Conversation website. What In what what way can audiences and fans um, not be part of the problem here? I mean, it's really yeah. hard. It's really, you know, you love an artist and the artist divulges some personal trauma that they've experienced. And it's really hard not to become invested in that and to eat it up because you care about this artist and that makes them seem maybe more human to you and they're relatable and maybe inspiring. What is the appropriate reaction for a member uh, of, of the audience uh, in that situation? I think always remembering that this person is a person first and an entertain ent entertainment figure second, um, that you're not entitled to know all the gory details about everything that happens, you know, to them or in their minds. And that, you know, sort of, you know, um, maybe audiences can think a little bit more about how to stop the production of trauma narratives than hmm. just continuing to, you know, feast on them over and over and over again. Right. So it's like, these things are, are sort of designed to get audiences attention and, and they do. Right. But like as an audience member, as you're sort of consuming these things again and again and again, maybe focusing more of the effort on what we all can do to try to stop the, the production of these kind of stories. Right. Also just sort of remembering that just because a person is telling their story it doesn't mean that they've healed from it. It doesn't mean that they um, are better, right? And so sometimes like uh, people sort of sharing in this way can re-traumatize them, right? So if we really care about these audiences who sort of like live for us in some ways, we need to sort of think about um, what we're expecting of them, what we're taking from them. And I guess the other thing is just to um, listen to them, right? When uh, sort of people are, you know, Demi Lovato being a perfect example, um, uh, you know, when she's sort of singing in her song, like anyone, you know, she's talking about how no one's listening, you know, no one hears her anymore. She told her secrets till her throat was sore, like all these things. I'm like, that one is just sort of so on the nose. Like, if we love these people so much, like, why aren't we listening? Mm. That's sort of what I would say from the audience standpoint. Hmm. So you mentioned, too, that we uh, and this is true when, when someone that we we adore and love their work and, and respect who's famous comes out and 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 divulges something so messy and vulnerable and human. We're kind of we kind of expect them to sort of be telling us that now that, that now that they've kind of done all the work to be healed from it Um and not necessarily thinking about it, that they might actually, this might be the first time they're actually talking about this. Um, sure. and, and But does it pay off in a way, in a lasting way, do you think, for the stars to, to, um, to strip themselves down in that way? Well, I mean, I, I think that, you know, each individual is going to be different. Each individual is different in terms of their support systems, in terms of their vulnerabilities. You know, I think... Um, 
you know, it may pay off for some, it may be exactly wrong for others, right? So I, I don't think that I can give you a uh, one size fits all mm. answer to that. Do you think that on the one hand, it might actually encourage people, fans to be more authentic and share their own struggles? Like maybe that could be a silver lining here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, I mean, again, in the article, I do, I do mention that mm. as as something that um, is a possibility. But again, I think it's um, fans have their own challenges, right? They have their own struggles, and so I think um, anytime we can remove stigma from you know different types of disclosures, I think that's terrific. But um, you just hope that everybody is like respecting boundaries right as they do so like you don't want someone to get take a cue from a pop star that this is okay to do and then have like negative consequences in their own life as a result of it because they don't have sort of like the power and the cachet and all of that as a star right so i think again destigmatization is great um and and certainly helpful in 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 that kind of regard um but you know personal disclosures like before people are ready to do that or before people, you know, realize the consequences of that. Um, those things can be difficult for fans just as they can be difficult for artists, right? So again, I think it's a, I think emotional stripping is both a, a good thing in removing stigma and a um, particularly harmful thing with respect to people uh, sharing their innermost secrets in public if they don't, if they haven't done it sort of at a time that's that's good for them, meaning they're ready, they have support systems mm -hmm. and they are uh, ready to sort of take whatever comes with that with regard to um, responses. Kristen Lieb is a professor of marketing at Emerson College. She wrote about the shift toward more trauma disclosure among women pop stars recently for the Conversation website. Professor, thanks for talking us through this today. I appreciate it. Thank you. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. We've collected some of our favorite interviews from past years. Thanks for listening. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. It has been great having you with us today for this curated episode of the show from our archives. You know, we've been on the air every weekday since 2015. And there are so many conversations we've had during that time that are worth another listen. When we started the show back then, our goal was to dig deep, because no matter how clear-cut you think an issue is, there's always another perspective. And there's likely to come a moment while listening to Top of Mind when you think, huh, that had not occurred to me. You can tap into the full Top of Mind archive on the free BYU Radio app. And we'd love to have you connect with us on social media to let us know what you think of the show. We are at BYU Top of Mind on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. <laughs>